0: Before we address chapter 14's titular structure and dynamics of the self, I would like to quote Edward Edinger's interlude. In the Ion Lectures, Edinger reminds us of what Jung has been trying to do with this book all along. He states that Jung is trying to excavate the contents of humanity's collective unconscious, and he does this just like an archaeologist excavates the contents of an ancient civilization. Quote, he has to dig them out and then order classify, and present the artifacts, the data gathered by his excavation. In the case of the collective unconscious, the archaeological data that Jung is trying to derive is found in religions, myths, and fairy tales, which correspond to collective dreams and fantasies. By excavating these psychic contents, Jung is trying to determine patterns. He determines these patterns by looking at the similarities between cross-cultural dreams and fantasies, and draws conclusions on how they reflect the nature of the psyche. One such example I will cite is a concept we have been discussing for the majority of this series, Jung's conception of the self. This isn't a concept that Jung came up with out of nowhere and attempted to justify, It was something he deduced after looking at various pieces of religious material. Allow me to cite as an example a piece of Gnostic imagery from chapter 13. An example that I omitted from the last two videos and that I am only mentioning now. This image is known as the Monad. It is provided by a 2nd century Gnostic named Monoyimus. If I were to illustrate the Monad, it would look like this. A single dot. Monoemos believed that this single dot is uncompounded and indivisible, yet compounded and divisible, loving and at peace with all things, yet warring with all things, and at war with itself in all things. The quotation goes on to describe the monad's various contradictory qualities. To Monoemos, this monad is the godhead, the source of all things, similar to the godhead we discussed in chapters 9, 11, and 13. Moreover... Manoemus believed that if one sought the monad from out thyself, and learned that it is the monad that taketh possession of everything in thee, thou wilt find him in thyself, the one and the many, like to that little point, for it is in thee that he hath his origin and his deliverance. It is from this concept that Jung derived the notion of the Jungian self. The dot which contains all things and that resides in us is the self. It is from the self that we have our origin and our deliverance. It is a remarkable psychological statement considering it was made almost 2000 years ago, long before the notion of the psyche was conceived. But as I said before, Jung had to find parallels to the monad concept before he could even think about putting forward a concept that he could confidently call empirical. Another image Jung cites comes from the ancient Hindu scriptures known as the Upanishads. I know I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, just bear with me. These scriptures were heavily influential on people like Ralph Waldo Emerson, Friedrich Nietzsche, and especially Schopenhauer. In regards to Jung, the Upanishads are where he derived the term self from. Edinger cites the passage from the Upanishads where the term self is used. Quote, The self is ear of the ear, mind of the mind, speech of the speech. He is also breath of the breath, and eye of the eye. Him the eye does not see, nor the tongue express, nor the mind grasp. Him we neither know nor are able to teach. Different is he from the known, and different is he from the unknown. That which is not comprehended by the mind, but by which the mind comprehends, know that to be Brahman. He who dwells in all beings but is separate from all beings, whom no being knows, whose body all beings are, and who controls all beings from within. He, the self, is the inner ruler, the immortal. Everything that is said here is consistent with what has been said about the self up until this point in the book. Everything that Jung has authored into his concept of the self has been deduced from not only these two images, but also the various dreams, stories, and images authored in *Ion* and addressed throughout Jung's other works. When Jung makes his abstract conceptions, he is not trying to impose any sort of religious or mystical bias into his conclusions. He's attempting to study psychology and metaphysics from a purely empirical perspective, and he does this, as I said before, by noticing patterns in the products of the unconscious mind. It is fair to disagree with his conclusions or with the patterns he points to, but to suggest that Jung's abstractions are merely the products of a psychotic mystic is simply inaccurate. For the remainder of this chapter, what Jung attempts to do is link a series of unconscious images into a single chain. Once he fully illustrates this chain for us, Jung hypothesizes that this chain not only describes the structure and dynamics of the self, but also the structure and dynamics of our reality. When I use the word chain... I don't speak purely in metaphor, I mean a literal chain. Here is an illustration. What you see here are a series of four double pyramids, a series of cones linked together. Each cone represents a different stage in not only the ego's development, but also the world's development. That probably doesn't make sense now, but things will become clear as we address each double pyramid step by step. The Gnostic sect of the Knossens, which we discussed in the last chapter, conceived of an image known as the Moses Quaternio, also known as the Anthropos Quaternio. This is the double pyramid you see at the top of the chain. At the top is a single dot that is labeled anthropos or higher atom. At the bottom is a single dot labeled man or lower atom. This bottom dot can also be psychologically referred to as the ego. In between the top and bottom dots is a square. The top and bottom dots are linked to this square, thus forming the double pyramid. The edges of the square are labeled as the higher Moses, the higher Jethro, the positive Miriam, and the wise Sephora. It is difficult to say how and why the Gnostics conceived of this image, but what I can do is demonstrate the image's function. The lower atom, as I said before, is the ego. It is you. The higher atom is, for all intents and purposes, the Jungian self. Like the ego strives towards the self, the lower Adam is striving to become the higher Adam. Before the lower can become the higher though, it has to confront the Moses Quaternio. The four names of Moses, Jethro, Miriam, and Zipporah are derived from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. I have to trust that those who are listening to this chapter are familiar with the story of Moses from Exodus. To try and recap the entire story now would take way too much time. It isn't necessary Necessary to know the story in order to understand the basics of what I am about to say. However, there will be a couple of valuable details you will miss out on if you don't. If you want to hear the story of Moses, you can learn the basics by watching the DreamWorks animated movie The Prince of Egypt. I highly recommend it by the way. It's a great movie to watch regardless if you are religious or not. Here are the basic things you need to know. At one point, the biblical Moses went out into the desert after killing an Egyptian slave driver who was beating a Hebrew. At this point in the story, he is the quote-unquote ego, or lower Adam. In order for him to begin to approach the higher Adam, he must come into contact with greater personalities. These personalities are actual people, but they also represent archetypes of the unconscious. These personalities are Zipporah, who became Moses' wife. To Jung, she represents the archetype of the great mother. He also encounters Jethro, Zipporah's father and a Midian priest. He represents the archetype of the wise old man. When Moses returns to Egypt to free the Hebrews after God commanded him to, he meets up with his long lost sister, Miriam. To young, Miriam represents the Anima. As Moses interacts with these three people, he is figuratively confronting the contents of his unconscious. He is integrating the contents that he needs in order to become a higher version of himself. After he marries Zipporah and rescues the Hebrews from Egypt, he fulfills the Quaternio. He is no longer the lower Adam, but a sort of great father archetype, to complement Zipporah as the great mother. Though Moses becomes a greater man, he is still nowhere near to the self, though he does strive towards it for the rest of his life. Now, in order for Moses to progress to become closer to the higher Adam, or self, Young says that he must continuously interact with the two parts of the Quaternio that are higher. These are Jethro and Miriam. From this, we thus get a gradual progression, a series of steps leading from the lower to the higher atom. In other words, when Moses interacts with Jethro and Miriam in the physical world, he is simultaneously interacting with the wise old man and the anima, in the psychic world. Whilst doing this, Moses is continuously integrating the masculine and feminine traits that he needs so that he can reach a closer approximation to the self. The more Moses does this, the more steps that are built from the Quaternio to the higher Adam. To summarize, this Gnostic image can be viewed as a take on Jung's process of ego development. Moses, or the ego, must confront the shadow, which is symbolized by his flight out of Egypt into the desert. There, he meets the contents of his unconscious, both in physical and mental form. After doing this, he becomes synonymous with the archetype of the Great Father. Moses continues to do this for the rest of his life, integrating the contents of his unconscious mind so that his ego can reach closer approximation to the self. Though he did not reach the self, he developed so efficiently that he became the most important prophet of Judaism. Now, let us address the second double pyramid, the one that lies below the Moses Quaternio. Jung calls this double pyramid the Shadow Quaternio. This image is not a Gnostic image, but is a construction derived psychologically from the first, namely that there must be an opposite to everything. I want to remind you what was said in Chapter Six about how the last two thousand years featured a striving towards Christ and Christian sentiments, and a striving towards Antichrist and anti-Christian sentiments. If opposites are a precondition to existence, and one can strive to either or, then naturally Moses could have chosen to strive towards a quote-unquote Adam that was lower than the lower Adam in the Moses Quaternio. Directly opposed to the lower Adam in Jung's Shadow Quaternio is the serpent, or Satan. Based on the good and bad decisions you make, you can strive towards the self or God, or strive towards its opposite the devil. It all depends on how one interacts with the archetypes. The archetypes of Jethro, Miriam, Zipporah, and Moses are not exempt from the necessity of opposites. In the Shadow Quaternio, we have the Lower Jethro, the Negative Miriam, the Lower Zipporah, also known as the Ethiopian woman, and Moses as the carnal man, also known as the Lesser Father. Jung points to various examples from the Bible to justify characterizing these people with positive and negative traits, but we won't go into them for the sake of time and clarity. All you need to know is that the ego interacts with these archetypes and chooses to integrate their positive or negative contents. Depending on their choices, they can strive either upwards or downwards, to God or to the Devil. Now, Let me remind you that the lower part of the Shadow Quaternio is not labeled Devil it is labeled serpent. Remember, as we pointed out in chapter 13, that there are positive and negative qualities associated with the serpent. It can be a negative symbol in that the serpent is often equated with the devil, but it can also be a positive symbol in that it is equated with Jesus. Here's a quote from Jung. That the snake, contrary to expectation, should be a counterpart of the Anthropos, the higher Adam, is corroborated by the fact, of special significance for the Middle Ages, that it is on the one hand a well-known allegory of Christ, and on the other hand appears to be equipped with the gift of wisdom and of supreme spirituality. To use a better example of how the serpent can represent positive qualities, recall the Gnostic god Nos from the last chapter. Nos pervades everything. Nas brings the signs of the Father down from heaven so that humans can become closer to God. Let us not forget also that the devil's real name is Lucifer which means light bringer. Prior to Lucifer's fall from heaven, he was the highest angel in God's kingdom for his immense wisdom. The point that I am trying to make is that the serpent is much like the Jungian self in that they both represent positive and negative qualities. Even though the serpent rules the shadow, The shadow contains all the repressed material we need to confront for better or for worse. If the shadow represents our unconscious contents that can and must be integrated, then the serpent, would correspond to what is totally unconscious and incapable of becoming conscious, but which as the collective unconscious and its instinct seem to possess a peculiar wisdom of its own and a knowledge that is often felt to be supernatural. This is the treasure which the snake or dragon guards, and also the reason why the snake signifies evil and darkness on the one hand and wisdom on the other. If you are a fan of Jordan Peterson, This quote must seem awfully familiar. To put it simply, the positive and negative contents represented by the serpent and the self must be integrated by the ego. The only problem is in distinguishing which positive and negative elements belong to the self and which belong to the serpent. The answer for this lies in something we discussed back in chapter 5 when we discussed the conflict of science and religion. In order for the human race to progress beyond its current state, it must confront the positive and negative qualities inherent to both the Christian sentiment, represented by religion, and the anti-Christian sentiment, represented by science. Once we integrate these truths, we will evolve. This process is reflected in the Moses and Shadow Quaternios. By confronting the archetypes that bring you closer to christ and the ones that draw you away from christ you will integrate greater levels of darkness and light until you become synonymous with the unity represented by the jungian self there is one last thing i would like to link these quaternios to as i said before in chapter six Jung discussed how the 2,000 years which defined the Ion of Pisces could be split into two. The first thousand years could be defined as the Christian era, and the second thousand years that followed could be defined as the anti-Christian era. In regards to the first thousand years, Jung tries to link this to the two quaternios. To use Edward Eddinger's words, The first 500 years up to 500 AD would correspond to the Moses Quaternity, the spiritual realm which reflects the collective attitude of that period, pneumatic, spiritual, and not of this world. The period from 500 to 1000 AD would correspond to the shadow quaternity, referring to the animal realm, including carnal man. Jung says that this period corresponds to the time when the church became worldly, losing its strictly spiritual approach. It descended, so to speak, into relations with carnal man. Without even saying a word, I am certain that you have already made the correct assumption regarding the following thousand years, and their relation to the other two as yet undiscussed quaternios. If the first one thousand years involved the spreading of the Christian sentiment, starting with Jesus as the higher Adam, and spreading out to even the most loathsome men, the following one thousand years would be a continuation of that descent from the highest high to the lowest low. We will discuss more of this in part two.